IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On the show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about the 10th anniversary of Random Access Memories and the end of MTV News, among other topics. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, he is a surgeon, Dr. Han, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? You know, I've come to believe that having the good doctor trend during a writer's strike is about as much of a union-busting tactic as having Imagine Dragons do that picket line concert. You know, there's, there's put, you know, writers did this. You realize that, right? Are you sure we really need them? I, also, let, let's just make sure that we ease our listeners in who, like, are not completely online poisoned by explaining this entire joke. Yeah, so there was a meme this week of a video taken from the ABC drama The Good Doctor, which, is that still on the air? Uh, you I know, it, I looked I at it, might... it was in- inconclusive. Maybe I just, like, lost interest in finding out, but uh, I want to th- say it is, it is... Uh yeah, it's it's still going. This show's gonna blow. The, it's still this is gonna blow up. So it, it's a. Sh- I've never seen the show. I'm familiar with it. I've heard about it. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's about an autistic doctor named Doctor Sean, and uh, that's all I know about it. Yeah. <laughs> In addition to this video that's been circulating of a scene from the show where the doctor is having a meltdown. And he's screaming at this other doctor who's apparently his boss. That's Dr. Han. Daniel Day Kim is from Lost. Yeah, he, he was in Lost. Exactly. I recognize him from Lost. He's screaming at him. He says, I am not a... Oh, he says, I am a surgeon, Dr. Han. I am, and he, and he, it's like the most insane clip. Uh, he's just melting down and screaming, I am a surgeon, Dr. Han. And I actually found the original episode because i'm like they must have exaggerated this you know there must have been some sort of like digital manipulation to make this look as ridiculous as it does no that's exactly how it is in the episode <laughs> like it is not manipulated and it it really is like a window into network tv mm-hmm. you know because like i only ever learn about shows on network tv when i'm watching sports <laughs> You know, because they have nonstop promos for the crappy shows that they have during the week. Like, you'll be watching football on Fox, and you'll learn about, like, all the different iterations of 911 yeah. that are on Fox now. And But this is, like, I think the most network TV that I've watched in a long time. <laughs> like, just watching that. Because every time that clip comes up in my social media feed, I watch it at least once. It's mesmerizing. I, I'm not sick of it yet. I, I feel like I should be, but I'm not. Yeah, I, I think we, we've dipped our toe into these sort of waters before when we talked about Tulsa King or your radio promoter friend. But man, there's nothing more satisfying than doing a little dip on like what's going on with network TV or what's going on with K Rock style rock. Not because it like I don't know gives us insight into like the mind of the, for lack of a better term, normie, but uh, it's more because you watch a show like The Good Doctor or listen to AJR or like Five Finger Death Punch and it just seems way more avant-garde than anything on prestige TV or, you know, in like oh, uh, like boundary-pushing electronic music. It's just really hard to conceive like, you know, 
to quote Howell Burris, like a human being wrote this and gave this to a higher ranking human being and said, yeah, let's go with that. I had another thing like that this week where my boss, Phil, shout out to Phil, messaged me on Slack and he's like, have you heard of this guy, Noah Kahan? I feel like that guy always pops up on like Bottle Rock or these other fest. Like he, I, as a matter of fact, that when I drive by the San Diego State um, venue where I saw like the National in the nineteen seventy five, I think he's playing there, right? Yeah, well, yeah, he's like a big headliner at Austin City Limits this year. He's like not on like the top line, but he's on the second line, and he's on. He's like a headliner for all these other festivals. And Phil reached out to me. He's like. Who the hell is Noah Kahan? Do you, do you know who this guy is? And I'm like, I've never heard of him. I'm going to assume it's like a and, Jack Johnson kind of. Right, yeah. Okay, am I totally. right? Yeah, okay, it's like a, yeah, like a Jack Johnson, Jason Mraz type thing. And, you know, you go on Spotify and he has songs that have been streamed like, you know, 10, 20 million times. I mean, really good streaming numbers. Uh, there was a... Apparently, he released the cover of Jason Isbell's uh, If We Were Vampires this week with Wesley Schultz from the Lumineers. Oh. Uh, I don't know if that's any good. <laughs> but uh, Listeners, how about you chime in? This is like the part where we get like real sports talk radio. It's like, oh, we're going to take some messages right now. Like, uh, Yeah, any, any Noah Kahan fans in the house? Like, write us an yeah. email. Where, like, I want to hear. Where are the Kahan heads at? <laughs> Apparently, his fans are called Busy Heads. Oh. <laughs> because I think he has a record named Busy Head. Okay. So the Wouldn't they be the, the Busy the Head Kahan. Heads then? I don't know. I'm, I, I, need, I, I need to reach out to some of the Busy Heads, see about like the, or like the etymology of it all. Right. Or like Busy Head Squares, you know, like like that, like that the head is squared. I don't know. Um, before we get to the topics that I announced at the top of the show, we had a lot of topics this week. I think there's like a running theme this week mm-hmm. of things ending that we thought were already finished in the aughts, <laughs> but they actually finished this week. Uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. But like right before we started recording, uh, it was announced that there's a new Queens of the Stone Age album coming out June 16th. It's called In Times New Roman. Shout out to Times New Roman, by the way. Are you a Times New Roman guy? Are you talking about Times New Viking? No, I'm talking about Times oh, New the Roman, font. the font. Okay, I thought you were yeah. talking Times New Viking, one of my top five favorite band names of all time. Not sure about the music itself, even though they're like Midwestern heroes, but... I, li- I like that, because right. they were sort of like a, like a noisier GBV, yeah. right? They were part of that yeah. uh, short-lived shit gaze phase. Um, Times New yeah, Roman, good. I- I'm more of an aerial person. What can I tell you? I like Times New Roman. I- that's my go-to. Even though you have to like change to it mm-hmm. in the drop... I like Times New Roman. Apparently, Josh. Okay, have we decided it's Ome, right? Josh Ome. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I Is that it? I, I I'm like really caught flat-footed here. <laughs> like I've always made the joke that like from uh, it's not Josh Hom. Yeah, it's not Hom, or is it Home? Josh. Let's just call him Josh. We're 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 we'll call him it's Josh. It's been twenty, thirty years of us knowing this guy. He's just Josh now. Okay, so Josh. Apparently, he's a Times New Roman guy. Like when he's going on Microsoft Word to type out some lyrics he's scrolling down to the times new roman and then at some point he thought this would be a, a great fucking album title so here we are uh what's the status of josh <laughs> right now because <laughs> you know he's had some he's had a tumultuous personal life in recent years I, I, he, apparently he's going through like the worst divorce of all time 
to Brody Dahl. And I don't even want to get into that because it seems like there's there's accusations flying on both sides. I don't know what to believe there. Um, he kicked a photographer in the face. That that <laughs> like did five happen. years ago. You, that was a long time ago, though, right? Yeah. Well, this is the first Queens of the Stone Age record in six years, so it's been a while. Do you remember the name of the last Queens of the Stone Age record? I know I reviewed it. I want to say it was Villains or something like that. Very good. Oh, That's yeah. it. Villains. Um, it's been a while since that record, and on that tour cycle, I believe, is when the kick in the face happened, which he said was an accident, but it's on video. It didn't look accidental. Uh, anyway, like, what's Josh's status? Is he semi-canceled? Is he... Like in a gray area, or uh, I I don't know. I can't, it's hard to get my head around. Yeah, that. I always feel like you know, ever even after they got rid of Nick Olvery, like they've been kind. Like, what is the cancellation status of this band? It's it, it's at a point where you have to ask yourself, what's the cast cancellation status of this band? You know, um, all of us got a very long email, like a very long press release, kind of summing up where uh, the custody case is, and it's just like really depressing um you know it sucks that people have to do that i suppose um and i i I honestly can't say i feel as if like people i I think we're at a point where even if this album is like really good like rated r type level i don't think people are gonna like vouch for it in the same way that they might have like were it 2008 or something like that. Like there, there, there are bands like, we're not going to go out of our way to cancel this band, but like, we're not going to go out of our way to like pump it up. So I essentially see it as like, you know, it's going to come out. It's going to have a bunch of songs on K rock. And, and also that Foo Fighters album comes out two weeks before, man. So those programmers are eaten this summer. Yeah. I mean, I think that for the people that matter, Two Queens of the Stone Age, they don't care about the personal stuff. Like, the K-Rock crowd, they won't care. And, like, fans of the band won't care. And people who don't like this band, they're going to think that Josh is, you know, maybe a shady guy. But they wouldn't have liked this record anyway. So it's, like, one of those type of situations. I mean, I, I still like Queens of the Stone Age. I feel like on their first three records, they were commenting on radio rock i mean like songs for the deaf is like literally an album yeah. commenting on radio rock but even like rated r and the self-titled record they, there was a subversive quality to those albums that i think over time has been lost where they are essentially like a slightly weirder foo fighters yeah. at this point and you know i can appreciate them on that level i i heard the single it's about what i expected uh, if you just imagine a Queens of the Stone Age song in your head, it is probably similar to this <laughs> song that they released this week, which is called Emotion Sickness. Uh, not Motion Sickness, not a Phoebe Bridgers yeah. cover. It's a Emotion Sickness. Um, so, I, you know, I, I'm sure this record will come out and I'll really love about three songs and I'll like about five songs and I'll forget the other four songs. Like, that's my prediction. I hope I'm wrong. I don't think it's going to be another rated R, but... I've been wrong before, and if the, if it was another rated R, I'd be pretty excited about that. Yeah, after we finish recording this episode, I can't wait to go on Twitter and see if this is going to be like the 2023 Here Comes the Cowboy with like all these Phoebe Bridgers <laughs> and Boy Genius Extended Universe fans getting on this guy for having a song title that's somewhat similar to Motion Sickness. Uh, I think it's different enough that they'll be okay. I mean, I, I would love... 
to see the Venn diagram of Phoebe Bridgers and Queens of the Stone Age fans. That's us, I baby. Mean, <laughs> we might be the only two. Um, we have to talk about a big, another big thing in music this week, and this is the beginning of our theme of things that we thought ended in the aughts, but actually ended this week. And the first thing is Sum 41, the pop punk band from Canada. Uh, I'm going to read this from the New York Times. The band Sum 41 announced on Monday that it was breaking up after 27 years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know they were together that long. Unleashing a well of nostalgia for the early 2000s when pop punk seemed ubiquitous on MTV's Total Request Live and in memorable scenes in blockbuster movies. The Canadian group fronted by the spiky-haired singer Derek Wibley. That's his name. <laughs> Love that name. That's his name. Uh, Der- Derek, D-E-R-Y-C-K. Fantastic spelling. Was part of a pop punk wave that included Blink-182, Simple Plan, Good Charlotte, and Avril Lavigne. Isn't Blink in a different class? Oh, absolutely. They st- yes. They're like they're older. They're like mid-90s. Yeah, they're a bit yeah, they're older, older and a lot bigger. And we'll get into like why that's important, but... I could see, like, I could see it. Yeah, if you, if I mean, they were, they were pop, but it's kind of like grouping the Beatles into like early seventies power pop bands. <laughs> it's like saying the Beatles and the Raspberries. You know what I mean? Like they were. I feel like they invented that scene. They should be separate. But anyway, their hits included "Fat Lip" and "In Too Deep," which fans love to belt out in their car or jump up and down at at shows. Uh, the New York Times. The New York Times fact checked that. By the way, the New York Times fact checked yeah. that they actually did love to belt it out in the car. Yeah, and also like how many? Like you're also assuming that fans of this band had driver's licenses at that time, which That's is like true. Yeah, I mean this this stuff trended super young, but you know maybe on the way to soccer practice you belt it out in mom's car. I don't know. <laughs> right, right, or you know when they're hanging out in someone's basement watching uh, punked. <laughs> And then during commercials, they put on Sum 41. Uh, the band's music was also featured in popular movies from the early 2000s, among them Spider-Man, Dude, Where's My Car, and Bring It On. Are these the blockbuster was- movies that they're talking about? Because Spider-Man, oh, yes, yeah. but Dude, Where's My Car? Like New York <laughs> Times, man. Like, come on. Who, yeah. who got on we're, the pop yeah. punk beat here? Yeah, we're stretching the definition of blockbuster for Dude, Where's My Car? Although I did see that in the theaters. I did, and I think I saw it opening weekend. Because before you have, that's what I did before I had kids. Apparently, I would just go see anything <laughs> in the movie theater. Um, you know, this week I was waiting for the think piece that like contextualized some forty one as like an actually great band. You know, I was waiting, and I don't know if that happened. Maybe it did, and I just didn't see it. But is there a case for them? Because I just think of them as like a goofy pop punk band from the early 2000s. Like the only song of theirs I know is Fat Lip. And I remember that video. There's a lot of synchronized jumping in that video, which was fun. Like that, I, I mean, I remember liking the video and the, I thought the song was okay. I'm a fan of synchronized jumping. I, I, I want more bands to bring that back. You know, jump at the same time, do, kick in the air and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I don't know. Am I, what am, am I missing anything? With this band? If we're doing like the impromptu yay or nay, I'm gonna go with yay because they, you know, I don't, wow. I don't, I don't, of course I don't like like this band, but they had some good moments. Like they're a band, like sort of like Aerosmith, where I do have to hand it to them. My favorite song of theirs is Still Waiting, which is from Does This Look Infected? That's the follow up to All Killer No Filler. Wow. And wow. the video is like, you're going to the, 
You're going to the second record? I I, I imagine it's you're, the you're second. Going to, yeah. <laughs> you're going to the wow. The, the, dar- you're going the darker, more the darker, more considerate sophomore album. Um, <laughs> the, and the Pinkerton. Yeah. This is their Pinkerton. Yeah, and so. Yeah, the video for Still Waiting is sort of like, um, I guess, like Nirvana's in bloom, except it's entirely about the Strokes last night video. It's actually pretty funny. Um, Also, we got to bring up the fact that, like, have you, do you recall or have you learned about when they, like, escaped, like, a a civil war in the Congo on a helicopter. They were filming a, a documentary there. It's sort of like like Popstar and Tropic Thunder. I, I, this, this happened. It is absolutely mind-blowing. Wait, wait, wait. So, so Derek Wibley. Mr. Wibley, if we're using New York Times voice. <laughs> he was... He was concerned about the Congo, so he made a documentary about it, and then they got like stranded there. I think I I, I want to say it was like they were doing like some sort of um, you know the band was doing like a documentary or a benefit of some sort, and you know like at the time uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo things were really um, uh, you know disputed there, and uh, you know like a like war breaks out. And they have to, like, quite literally get in a helicopter to get the fuck out of there, or they might die. <laughs> it's, y- you oh can, God. yeah, it's insane. Um, wow. So. Is there any footage of this? Like, this should be a documentary. Yeah, it's it, it's so unbelievable. But also, another thing in their favor, I saw them at the Beale Street Festival in Memphis. I, I'm pretty sure they played right between Jimmy Eat World and Snoop Dogg. So, um, and also, uh, Derek Wibley, he dated Paris Hilton before marrying Avril Lavigne. So that feels like definitive. But he's, is he still married to no, her? No, Avril, uh, leveled up to Chad Krager, but, um. I was going to say, yeah. yeah, yeah. She married the guy from Nickelback, yeah. which is like, do Canadian pop stars have to marry each other? Is that like a law? It's like the radio thing where they have to play like a certain amount of like Canadian <laughs> dance. I don't know, but, um. Yeah, you. It's like yeah, you you got to keep the the pop stars in house yeah. here to support the you know the, like this like the national economy or something. Yeah. Um, so I'm not gonna front here. I thought this band was garbage at the time. I have no affinity really for this era like of <laughs> pop punk at all. It's not even something like new metal where I can go back retrospectively and see like oh, Corn's a really good band and. You know, there's and Slipknot is a really good band, and there's like other good bands in that scene, and like the terrible bands, at least are entertaining and kind of fun to talk about. Um, this scene, I really have no affinity for. I I, I don't know if you feel differently because it does feel like a little emo adjacent here. I will say that I'm a little surprised that they're breaking up now because the fan base is in that sort of just like heaven demographic at this point where. You know, they're mid-30s, probably. Mm. You know, it's a nostalgia market now. So it seems like these bands, the Good Charlottes, uh, Simple Plan, uh, All-American Rejects, wait, can you put them in here? Yeah, or, I think like, so. Motion City? Absolutely. What about Motion, what about Motion City oh, Soundtrack? Oh, here we can fucking go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, if I, so, so you put them above these bands that I just mentioned. Well, I'm just surprised that, you know, as a Minnesotan, you're not giving, you're not showing uh, some civic pride for uh, so, uh, some Minneapolis legends. Like, I could see how Motion City Soundtrack could be grouped into this band. I feel like they came, a, their their peak was a little bit later like 2005 
Uh, commit This to Memory, that's the album they put out in 2005. It's fucking awesome. It came out on Epitaph, and it sounds a little more like um, New Pornographer-style power pop. Um, it holds up really, really well. But, um, yeah, with the rest of these bands, like, I don't like them. Uh, you know, I didn't like them when they first came out. Um, and I didn't like how, you know, for a very, very long time, like, they became somehow, like, the working definition of emo. Like, if you were to see, like, emo was back on, like, the news or whatever, they were probably talking about All-American Rejects. But I actually appreciate how trivial they are because, like, no one's going to come up and, like, make a point that, they were like important or they really changed the game. You know, you, you have mentioned they are in their, you know, just like heaven festival phase, which, you know, that's when we were young. That's, that's the deal. And they put, you know, they play those shows. And, um, I think all American rejects motion city soundtrack are, and simple plan are like touring together this fall. And you know what? That's like a way for like the get up kids to make a quick buck, you know, they'll hop on that tour and you know, they got to eat too. Yeah, get a babysitter, put your chain wallet back on, go see the pop punk nostalgia show. I mean, that's that's all good. I you know, I'll just say like there are bands that I loved when I was fourteen that are trash. Uh that I still love. So I don't I don't begrudge anyone still loving something that they love when they're fourteen. I just have to be honest. I'm not gonna be like the revisionist music critic here and say you know, I was listening to All Killer, No Filler, and I feel like it was a commentary on youth in the 9-11 era and how they escaped into the world of skate parks in order to deal with the new millennium tension that existed after the Twin Towers came down. You know, I, I, I you know, someone is going to write that piece. I'm not going to pretend like I would believe in that Dude, at all. you're like already halfway there. Like, just, you can get 200 <laughs> bucks out of somebody to get, just, just fucking AI the rest of that shit. You got yourself 200 bucks. I, I, I just improvised that off the top of my head. You know, you, come on. This is what, when you've been in the game yeah. this long, you can just turn that stuff out <laughs> without even thinking about it. Um, the second news item this week that pertains to an institution that I thought ended in the aughts, but actually ended this week is MTV News. Uh, And this is from The Hollywood Reporter. 36 years after MTV News was created to expand the stable programming that defined the cable channel MTV, it is no more. MTV News was shuttered this week as part of larger layoffs at parent company Paramount Global. What launched as a single show in 1987, The Week in Rock, led by correspondent Kurt Loder, eventually became a bona fide news outlet for Gen X and older millennials who found that traditional TV programming on the broadcast networks and CNN wasn't cutting it. And I'll say I'm one of those people. I'm one of those Gen Xers slash older millennials who uh, watched MTV News uh, as a teenager, and it was very formative for me, especially as someone who went into music journalism. Kurt Loder was the first music journalist I think I ever saw or even knew like, okay, that's what a music critic or journalist looks like. It was like him and like Siskel and Ebert. It was like, (laughs) okay, these are, these are film critics on TV. This is a music journalist on TV. And honestly, you know, before the internet, you, and if you lived in a small town, you didn't really know that people did this for a living. So for me, Kurt Loder was like the model of like what a journalist who writes about music is, was supposed to be. And uh, in a way, it still is. Like, I, I I was looking at old MTV news clips this week. And, um, I mean, he was, like, kind of older anyway at that time. 
but I mean, he just seems like such a grown up in a way that like nobody seems like a grown up now. You know, who does this for a living? Like he had a gravitas that I, that nobody has. Yeah. Now, uh, and, and I mean, the thing that people always talk about is him announcing the death of Kurt Cobain. Which, look, I don't want to overstate it. I, for younger people, you probably roll your eyes at this, but it is true that I think for a certain kind of person, that is like the Kennedy assassination moment. You know, like. Walter Cronkite going on TV and announcing that JFK has been murdered. You know, if you were a teenager in 1994 and you watched MTV, that's like a touchstone moment that people remember. It's like burned in your brain. Uh, and moments like that don't happen anymore. I mean, now we associate it with like seeing something on your phone. Like you see something on Twitter that tells you that something terrible has happened. and But it's not someone on TV telling it to you in this sort of calm voice that's like reassuring in a weird kind of way mm -hmm. um i don't know like do you relate to any of this like was mtv news like a big deal to you oh absolutely i mean when you talk about how um you know kurt loader has this gravitas which is kind of hard to imagine these days did I, I learned this guy is two years younger than joe biden kurt loader is 78 what? years old um so he was like what? 50 years old back in this day but like I, That's crazy. Yeah, it's wild. Um, he was like reviewing Pink Floyd albums at Rolling Stone back in the day. Um, yeah, like Kurt, and also like why, like whenever they portray like music writers in movies and TV shows, like why can't we like use Kurt Loder as the model rather than like I don't know the uh, Lester Bangs like Philip Seymour Hoffman type? But um, yeah, I know he's like this sharp dressed yeah, guy who swag. is serious. But he has like a dry sense of humor at the same time. Like you just feel like, oh, this guy, he knows all the angles. Yeah, he's he's really, you know, <laughs> sort of wish like, he was just, my dad. You know, <laughs> yeah, just just like watching him like interview like Axl Rose in the back of a limousine in 1992. I'm like, this is what we missed. This is the journalism <laughs> scene that we missed. You know, yeah. like it. I'm sorry, it's hard not to be wistful watching some of this stuff. Or like. Kurt Loder interviewing Madonna after the MTV Video Music Awards, and then Kurt, Courtney Love is like throwing stuff at them, and then he invites her to come on, and he's interviewing Madonna and Courtney Love at the same time. Mm. I mean, come on. You can't, there's nothing that we're doing now that even approaches that. It's like, oh yeah, I have a phoner <laughs> with someone who just put an album out on Bandcamp, yeah. you know? Like, and God bless that person. And they're turning off video for this phone, for this Zoom interview. <laughs> <laughs> and God bless that artist. You know, I want to write about that artist too, but, you know, the, the glamour, the larger-than-lifeness of that era of music journalism, it's just, you look at it and you're like, this is like, we're not even close to that anymore. Yeah, it's the the old, like, I'm getting the feeling that it came in at the end. The best is over, you know, like Tony Soprano <laughs> type shit. But yeah, I, you know, I, I definitely listened to both Stone Temple Pilots Lounge Fly and Megadeth P Sells Who's Buying this week. I, if if you are of our age, you know, you know exactly why those songs are significant to us. But um, yeah, I just kind of want to go... I want. I know it exists. I want to go on like eBay or wherever and like just order this big stockpile of entire days of MTV programming from like 1993 and just watch them again and just try to figure out like what flew over my head back in the day. Because I mean, sometimes I would be into MTV news. Other times I'm like, yeah, whatever. 
like, can we just get through this shit so I can see an Ugly Kid Joe video? Um, I just, like, wonder, like, what sort of, not even just, like, the shit, like, um, you know, Kurt Cobain dying, but, like, I don't know. Hey, there's this hip new band called Pavement or whatever. Like, I feel like that would have been the portal to, I don't know, indie rock or whatever as a whole if I, like, knew what to look for. So, I mean, yeah, shout out to, I, I actually looked on the MTV News uh, Twitter uh, before we filmed this, it has like 4.5 million followers. And mostly it's just talking about like mental health month, which is exactly what I would expect MTV news to be doing in 2023. But you know, like, yeah, shout out to them. Like people lost their jobs and shit. Like, I don't want to be too yeah. good about it, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and look, the people who work there, they were ill served by, you know, just like the revolving cast of like management that has been there forever. Um, I should shout out Patrick Hoskin. I, I think he's been there for like a long time. Yeah. I've, I've seen him on social media. Shout out to him. Um, they're doing good work, but they're just ill served by these corporate buffoons who ran that place into the ground and like destroyed a brand that was like really strong for a long time. And you know, all of the like silly things about MTV, like, you could set those aside. And you look at something like MTV News, like that was like a real journalistic uh, institution. Yeah. Like they did a lot of good work. And again, like in their prime, you know, Kurt Loder, you have like Tabitha Soren, Allison Stewart, people like Our that. Kennedy. <laughs> yeah. Well, she was a VJ. Oh, right, I don't think right, she was on right. MTV News. But, you know, they, these, they were like serious journalists who also had like a sense of humor. And, you know, if you came up, you know, in a certain era, like those were, they were like aspirational figures. Like that's who you thought, okay, that is who is a music journalist. Like that is how I should act or the kind of standards I should have. Um, so yeah, a lot of good people work there and they just got, again, like many people screwed over by clueless jerks mm. who treated it like a, you know, like a, like a handy wipe, you know, just used it for their own purposes and then tossed it into the garbage. So pretty sad. Yeah. So, the next thing I wanted to bring up was, uh, well, it's related to something I wrote this week. I wrote a column about the 10th anniversary of Random Access Memories, the Daft Punk record, which uh, turns 10 this month. And the, I guess, central thing in my piece is about whether this album is overrated or not. Because I feel like that has become the narrative when people talk about this album, which, by the way, very successful record, obviously, uh, you know, went to number one in like more than twenty countries, won multiple Grammys, including Album of the Year and Song of the Year for Get Lucky. Uh, you go on streaming platforms now. I, I believe that like half the record has been streamed more than a hundred million times. Uh, some of those songs have been streamed like several hundred million times. Uh, so clearly there are a lot of people that still love that record, but I feel like when people talk about it, certainly music critics, it's always couched in this language that suggests that the praise that it got initially was undeserved. <laughs> and I think like a concrete example of that is that Pitchfork Rescored piece that came out a couple years ago where Random Access Memories was among the albums that got downgraded. Mm -hmm. It was, I think it went from like an 8.8 .8 to a 6.8. Yeah. And they also upgraded Discovery, 
uh, the second Daft Punk record from a 6.4 to a 10. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, I I guess before we get into the reasons of like why this album is considered overrated, I'm just wondering what's your take on this album ten years later? Like, have you listened to this <laughs> record at all? Like in recent. Uh, years? You know, in preparation for this show, I'm kind of knowing this is coming around. I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm, re- I'm gonna give this, and I'm ready to give it another chance, and which would be like the first time I've listened to it like in full since literally 2020 or 2013. And then it dawned on me, it's like, oh, there is a major difference between then and now, which is I have like a full time job. When am I gonna find the time to listen to a 75 minute album that I'm not even sure I like, but. Uh, I'm like down to talk about it, just like talking about the thing rather than the thing itself. And uh, it's so funny, like like you were saying, the um, you know the view amongst music critics is that it's overrated. It's like, oh, whose fault's that? You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> that's just like real make work shit. But um, yeah, I think it, it. You know, with this, you, you compared it to a. It, it, this is kind of another end of an era sort of discussion. You compared it to some Steely Dan albums or some Steely Dan solo albums. And like, I'll have to take your word for that. But it just kind of <laughs> dawned on me that this album was more similar to like, I don't think Daft Punk would, you know, shy away from a comparison to, you know, movies. It, it reminds me more of like Once, a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or The Irishman. If you remember those conversations about, you know, because they all come from like visionaries and you know, there's like this underlying sense that the kind of vision they have is being outmoded. And they're all like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a pretty, I'm like groaning as I say, it's like kind of a rockist movie just in terms of like it's budgeting and it's like attention to detail. And, you know, and so the question is like whether and you kind of brought this up in your discussion of uh, random access memories, like whether it's like the thing, which is a big summer blockbuster or it's like an elegy for the thing as like things get more outmoded or whether it's like a critique of the culture. Um, And chances are it's like all three, you know what I mean? Because I hear this album and it's like, I don't hear it as like, Oh, this is the way everything should be. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about Random Access Memories is, you know, the year that it came out. And we've talked about 2013 uh, before on the show. I, I That's such a fascinating year of, like, the 21st century for music. It might be the most interesting year in a lot of respects. You know, and I wrote about that in my piece about how it really was a time, like, where a lot of things were in transition. Like, the music industry was still in this mentality of like trying to sell digital downloads to people. Yeah. You know, people thought like, oh, we, we got to get people to buy MP3s, but like they were not doing that. You know, album sales were, were plummeting. Uh, they hit all-time lows in 2013. Spotify was around, but it still hadn't reached critical mass yet. There was only about 24 million people that were using it in that year, and only 6 million like were paying subscribers. Like, that was shocking like, year. Like, because I remember, like, I wasn't using Spotify for real until, like, 2017. When you put that number in there, I'm like, no, that's, I was, yeah, that's right. I was, like, getting shit off uh, what.cd. Yeah, or, like, Pandora was a bigger deal in 2013. Hard to imagine. Spotify was. But, you know, and, you know, it was still a thing where albums were leaking. Like, as you said, you know, piracy was still, you know, thriving at that (laughs) time. So it was an uncertain economic period. 
And then in terms of like the critical conversation, like that was really the peak of like the anti-rockist discourse and in in, in critical conversations. Like that was when 2020 experience. Yeah. The 2020 experience and like, you know, Taylor Swift put out red the year before and there, there were a couple reviews that were condescending to Taylor Swift and like, I remember there was one music critic who I will not name, but essentially challenged this writer to a duel in the streets over Taylor Swift. Cause it was like, how dare you, sir? And like slapped him across the face with like a white glove, you know, I demand of satisfaction. Course now, yeah, exactly. Um, and Daft Punk enters that moment. And I think part of the hype with random access memories was that, um, there was this kind of generation of writers that was like, okay, we want to give Daft Punk their due here. <laughs> Not that they weren't critically acclaimed before, but like, you know, Discovery, for instance, getting a 6.4 from Pitchfork, you know, it, like no one would give that score to that album now. It's like an acknowledged classic. We just have to put, I also just want to point out though, in their defense, like Rolling Stone wasn't particularly, high. like they gave it like three stars or something. It, right. I mean, for the most part, it's, people it, were into it, but I, 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 I think we have to be abundantly clear that it was just, I mean, it's indicative of perhaps the view of it, but it, Pitchfork was hardly alone on that front. No. Yeah. It wasn't the kind of album that critics would get behind mm-hmm. at that time. It, it had a lot of bops. <laughs> In it, and I hate saying that word, but it's that kind of, it's like a pop record, right. essentially. And then, so Daft Punk enters this moment, and they deliver this record, which, you know, is basically like a raucous electronic record. Like, they, you know, it's like serious music, and we're using real musicians, and, you know, we're, we're making a statement about uh, sort of, that's sort of like looking back to the 20th century. Like, we, like, like they wanted to make a record in the style of like thriller Mm -hmm. or like the Saturday night fever soundtrack, like one of those sort of like monocultural classics, uh, that just has like excellent studio players on it and like really good songwriters and, uh, not just people making music on computers, which was becoming or what really was the new norm by that time. And I think it just kind of confused the reaction to that record. I think because they didn't give people what, they were expecting and like get lucky was the first single but it's not really representative of that album like that album for the most part i think is like a pretty melancholic record and there's a lot of slow kind of songs that are like they it feels like it's mourning something Hmm. you know it's not just like a bunch of like fun up party you know upbeat dance songs i mean there's some of that on that record but there's really not and i think that was the thing that, you know, when people listen to it now, expecting it to be maybe more like Discovery, I think that's where that record gets marooned a little bit. Yeah. I, I, well, I, the, the, the only other, there are two songs that I can remember like off top, not having listened to this album in a very, very long time. The first is uh, Doing It Right. That's the one with Panda Bear, uh, which yeah. proved to be pretty prophetic. Uh, you know, Panda Bear had quite a few electronic uh you know kind of electronic pop songs last year where he was a guest vocalist that were really awesome step by step by alec brax being another but uh and also giorgio by marauder um yeah they put i I think that's like the third song and that just i guess that's like really a gauntlet being thrown 
And it, <laughs> right. in a way, I, definitely the most polarizing yeah. song on the record. No, no question. And I think people kind of view that as like the thesis statement of um, you know random access memories, where it's it's like kind of an end of history sort of thing, rather than like forward thinking. And I think that's kind of true of like all of the Daft Punk records because you listen to Homework, they have a song called you know. They, they have a song that was like a tribute to like all the Chicago and Detroit DJs that came before them and, you know, Discovery as well, like a lot of sampling going on there. And so, um, yeah, I, I would say that like there's always kind of that component to them and it was just thrown into a, um, yeah, it was just kind of thrown into a very, very strange pivot point for, uh, you know, music criticism where it just absorbed all of the anxieties. Um, yeah, it just all the anxieties and all like the where is this going to go? And yeah, I, I would imagine. And also like kind of similar to our discussion about the good doctor. It's like there are people here who think that that, you know, Pharrell actually fronts this band, <laughs> you know, just from right. having heard Get Lucky. Yeah, I mean, and just like from seeing the reaction in my column, I think there is there are a lot of people who don't even know that this has been called overrated by you know music writers over the years who appreciate it purely as a representative of that time, you know, because it is a record that I think no matter how you however you feel about it, it 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 like defines the time it came out. Yeah. And it really is, I think, one of the big records of, like, the last 20 years. Like, if you were going to make a list of, like, 10 to 15 records, you'd have to mention this one because it really was an event. I mean, and again, that that's related to how it was marketed. It was marketed very, very well. Uh, and there was a lot of anticipation for it. it. It came out at the right time, even though it was kind of a weird time mm-hmm. for, for them. But... Um, yeah, it's a big record. It's a big deal. Uh, and there is a 10th anniversary edition, I guess, that came out today uh, that adds even more time <laughs> to the record. Now it's like a two-hour record because I think there's like a half hour of outtakes and stuff. So I'm, I haven't heard that yet. I might dip into that this weekend. But I, I like this record. I don't know. It, it seems like you're sort of ambivalent about it. But I'm I'm a fan of this record. I, I enjoyed going back and revisiting yeah maybe i'll give it another listen but i think that you asked like whether this is classic or overrated and i think it can be both in the same way i think that like again you know i don't know what sort of fan base this might activate but like tame impala's currents is both a classic and also kind of overrated i think most classics kind of have to be overrated just a bit like there are very few that um, you know, to be to be a classic, it has to have some sort of like popular impact way outside the critical sphere. And so there's always going to be that discrepancy between, you know, how popular Get Lucky is and the actual content. So, yeah, classic, a little overrated. Maybe I'll listen to, you know, may, let's see if I get through the entirety of Giorgio by Marauder this time around. Yeah, you know, I I tend to agree with what you just said about it being both. I mean, I made this point in my column that I think in the social media era, era everything is overrated. <laughs> because when you call something overrated, it's not really about the thing itself. It's about how people are talking about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And, and you're reacting to discourse that you essentially find annoying. And in the social media era, anything that's 
gets talked about inspires discourse that's annoying. <laughs> I mean, you know, like if you only want to focus on how people talk about something, you won't like anything because there's a lot of annoying people out there who say annoying things all day long. <laughs> so at some point you have to try to block that out. Uh, so you don't get too brain poisoned by that. Uh, cause it's very easy otherwise to just be like a raging misanthropic grouch <laughs> about everything in the world. And I, and I'm saying this to myself, by the way, this, I'm not even saying it to the listeners here. This is an affirmation I have to do for myself because I constantly feel like my judgment is in danger of being uh, blurred by just all the noise that you hear day in and day out in our modern society. <laughs> we live in a society. Yeah, it's we live in a society. Yeah, it's like at work, it's like all my coworkers like listen to Taylor Swift and very little else. I'm like, oh fuck, I get back on Twitter just to get a break from this. And like, it's more or less the same thing, except like somehow like bigger words are being used. Uh, quick tangent here, since you brought up Taylor Swift, I I was uh, watching music videos with my daughter yesterday, and she wanted to hear some Taylor Swift, so I put on Shake It Off. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you saw the video for Shake It Off? That is an extremely like problematic video. Like, do, 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 can you picture it in your head? Uh, I cannot. I mean, I I feel like I get like I've seen like the thumbnail on YouTube, but like not the actual thing. There's a lot in that video where Taylor Swift is basically making fun of like rap videos. Oh boy. And she's kind of dressed up as a rapper, and she oh, has yeah, like the backing bet. dancers, yeah. yeah, who are twerking and stuff. And I'm like, everyone's got that kind of too, video, though. <laughs> is it too late for her to be canceled for this? Because yeah. this is like, I don't know, it's it's a crazy video. Anyway, I'm not trying to stir up anything here. I don't care either way. I'm just saying, I was watching this with my daughter, and I'm like. I don't think I'm gonna show her the video for Shake It Off like again. This is like that. Uh, it's this not is good. like the. This is like those like tweets you see. It's like, yeah, my six year old daughter said Ruth Conda forever. Like this is this is pure cap. Nah, I'm playing. Um, yeah, I, I I'm pretty sure I knew that. And also, my, I'm not saying my daughter said Ruth Conda. This is not like Ruth Conda forever. <laughs> she just watched it. She didn't say anything. I, this was like all in my head. <laughs> yeah. Thinking like, oh, like this. Some problematic imagery in this video. I, I don't know if I want to support this. Um, we have to talk, because you are, of course, the king of emo music criticism. So we have to bring up the big news in emo this week, <laughs> which was American football buying the American football house. And I'll just read this from Vulture. The members of Illinois emo greats American football never actually lived in the house that graced the cover of their first self-titled album in 1999, but now they own the unlikely musical landmark, Polyvinyl, the indie label from Champaign, Illinois, that released American football, the record, revealed that the label and band purchased the house alongside the photographer who shot the cover, another photographer, in a Chicago art gallery group. So it's a consortium came together to buy this house. In a news release, Polyvinyl said the house in nearby Urbana was put up for sale in fall of 2022, and they worried it would be it could have been demolished. So the buyers made a pact to protect it. And here's a quote: uh, 
A few days ago, we held true to this promise and formally signed the closing papers preserving both the space and its unique legacy within the community that shaped its existence, the label said. So is this going to be like an emo museum now? Like, what, Do you know what's going on with this? Yeah, well, first off, we got to congratulate you know, American football for being the first like indie emo band that could like buy a house, um, even, though they, <laughs> even though they had to get some help from the uh, higher-ups. I mean, I keep on getting emails that the Punk Rock Museum opened up in Las Vegas, and kind of given the When We Were Young festival, I imagine if there were to be an emo festival, it would probably open there as well. Like, that's where everything's going, like the Raiders, the uh, Oakland A's, punk rock. Um, but, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if it becomes an emo museum, like, I think that would be that would be super cool. Uh, <laughs> over the past couple of years, like, people make, like, kind of indie rock landlord jokes. Like, there was that whole thing where the guy from Waves was apparently price gouging in Silver Lake. Um, and... I really did see like one or two people get kind of mad about polyvinyl and American football, like buying this house, not because like, oh, they shouldn't own the house that's on the cover. It's like, oh, look at these people like buying real estate, you know, how indie, how DIY. But look, if, if you think of this beyond being like, you know, the American football house and just being a house that exists on a college campus, the University of Illinois. Like, listener, I don't know if you've been back to where you went to college, you know, it like within the past five years. Like, give yourself like five years before you go back to your college campus. And like everything that you will have loved on that campus is turning into something else. Like, I went back to University of Virginia for the first time in like 13 years that I last summer and you know our combination a and w long john silver is like a boring ass tie place there's like an urban outfitters on broad street now and like anyone who is like who could possibly gin up being mad about this this house was abs. this first off this house is an absolute piece of shit even by the standard of like big 10 college campus uh five like five to ten people living in it houses um it was going to get torn down. It's going to be a Chipotle or like one of those interchangeable apartment complexes where you know, like seniors get price gouged because like all of a sudden they're, oh, hey, we got a pool or we have a clubhouse where you can play Xbox. Um, like no matter how you slice it, this is a good thing in order to maintain, I don't know, some semblance of uh, local color. <laughs> so... Do you are you regretful that you didn't get like your college friends together to buy the combination A W Long John Silver? <laughs> I mean, had we so had known that, uh, ha- had we had known, like we definitely would have done this. But I mean, yeah, just the the only thing like Facebook is kind of useful for now these days is to hear from like my friends who still live near like Athens, Georgia, to talk about like what restaurant we love that closed. And then, you know, if it's something like Weaver D's, you know, immortalized and automatic for the people, uh, you know, like the, the GoFundMe to keep it afloat. Um, yeah, college campuses, like college towns in general are like just as bad, if not worse, in terms of like gentrification. Yeah, I know like the grocery store that I worked at in college in Eau Claire was torn down. And now I think it's like, a, you know, like one of those like, mini mall things like with a wing stop in it and yeah. all that kind of stuff uh i know like that like i lived in a shitty house my junior year with with a bunch of pals and 
they totally renovated the house and there used to be like a shed <laughs> next door that we would throw oh no it was a garage that we would throw beer bottles at <laughs> uh late at night and that's that got torn down uh they probably even picked up the beer bottle broken glass which is which is a real tragedy um my closest equivalent with this is the big pink house uh which is the house that the band lived in in the late 60s like when they did the basement tapes with bob dylan and when i was in upstate new york i think five years ago i made a point to find this house and have my picture taken in front of it so if you're an american football fan and you're gonna do some emo tourism and go to this house like i I can't clown on you because I did the same thing. I think the big pink house is like an Airbnb now. <laughs> like someone posted an ad that you can like actually rent it and like live in, you know, like like for a weekend. That sounds right. Would you? That'd be pretty amazing. I wonder what they're gonna do with this house. The American football house. It'd be funny if they like did rent it out to people and like charge super high rent. That's and, and, no one would want. Like it, it's like notorious <laughs> for being a piece of shit. Um. Just or you know have like um, uh, have basement shows there, but like you have to buy tickets through Ticketmaster. <laughs> you know, like one of those kind of things, like, just to really irritate the DIY purists out there who are mad that they bought a house. Is that a real thing? People got mad that they bought a house. Like what? It's, it's a. It, I want to say that like it's either a real dry sense of humor or a joke that didn't land because I think that this you can sort of kind of fit it into some other things that people are mad about. Like, I don't know, like indie rock musicians making enough money to buy like a $200,000 house. I mean, I've I looked, I've looked at this house on Redfin. Um, it's yeah, it was like 240 or something like that. But I, I don't like if there are people who are mad, it like died down hopefully when they realize like oh wait like i'm to i'm totally in the wrong here yeah that's a touch grass situation exactly. i have to say as your doctor i prescribe that you touch grass mm. for a half hour yeah if you were posting or just that. listen to never met i mean fuck man We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So it's been a while since I've like thrown up something here where there's like maybe a zero to three percent chance that Steve might actually like it. But um, I have a profile running today at Uprox of a band uh, from Michigan called Hot Mulligan, and boy, if we're talking about uh, you know 2003 era type pop punk. This kind of sort of does that. Uh, these guys, they just finished touring with the Wonder Years. Uh, they've in the past toured with bands like Newfound Glory. And um, of the kind of emo adjacent, pop punk adjacent bands of modern times, like these are absolutely one of the most popular bunch. Um, they put out an album in 2020 called You'll Be Fine that came out like a week before the pandemic started. Um, and now they've got a new album called Why Would I Watch? And... Um, <laughs> I describe the album in the piece as like, uh, if a hyper pop band made pups, the dream is over completely out of samples from the warp tour, 2003 comp. They have really shit posty titles and like really dark song subjects. Um, 
their first single was about the guy saying, yeah, like, I hate my mom. I sort of wish she would die. She gets worse every time I see her. And the song is called Shh, Golf is On. Uh, it's an acquired taste for sure. But if you have any, any affinity for, you know, the Wonder Years or any of the bands currently on Wax Bodega, a really great label, uh, this album's for you. So uh, high variance stuff here. Yeah, there might be a 1% chance I'd get into that. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a 0% chance I think that you'll like what I'm going to recommend this week. It's a record called Pocketful of Rain. It's by a Cleveland guitarist and composer named Mark McGuire. Not the Oakland A's, St. Louis Cardinals great. His last name is spelled M-C-G-U-I-R-E. Uh, he was in a band uh, called Emeralds that existed in the... I like that band. Okay, so maybe you will like this record. Uh, he was in a band called Emeralds in the Aughts, which was sort of like an electronic, like ambient band. Mm-hmm. And then he went off on his own, and he actually ended up putting out fairly high-profile records on, on Dead Oceans in the 2010s. But this album comes from before that. It was released originally in 2009 as a double cassette and CDR and it's been re-released this month by Riley Walker, friend of the podcast. He has an indie label called Husky Pants Records. And he puts out a lot of his own records on that label, but he's also been putting out albums by other artists, and uh, including this uh, reissue. And uh, it's a really mesmerizing record. I would describe it as like guitar music that sounds like electronic music. Uh, there's a lot of long songs with like loops and repetition that are really about creating... A hypnotic vibe that takes you to somewhere else in your head uh there's also like shorter songs as well that kind of go in and out and do the same kind of thing but over the course of of like a minute or two i think the album is probably best looked at as like one long experience that you want to listen to from beginning to end and look a lot of us don't have time for that kind of album i get it this is a record that you have to give yourself over to and let it kind of overtake you and wash over you like like ocean waves and be swept away by it. Um, but you know if you have a moment this weekend, maybe like forty five minutes an hour or so to meditate on something kind of beautiful and spiritual, this is a record I think you want to check out. Uh, it's available on Bandcamp right now, so just basically Google Mark McGuire Bandcamp or you go on the Bandcamp app and look up Mark McGuire. You'll find this record, and I think you'll. Enjoy it if you are looking to be swept away this week. Yeah, this is a call for some band to split, you know, split the atom and sound a little bit like Hot Mulligan and a little bit like Emeralds. Like, uh... here we go. <laughs> We're throwing down the gauntlet. Please do it, and maybe throw some Sum Forty One in there. Hell too, yeah! For all the Sum Forty One heads out there who are sad. Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.